Will you pray with me, please? God, we pray that you would transform us by the renewing of our minds. As we turn to your scripture, God, we pray that you would be at work in our minds so that we might live out this scripture, understand it, and apply it to our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Well, welcome to Romans chapter 13. If you've been exploring this masterpiece with us for the last seven weeks, quite honestly, you might be feeling a little weary at this point because Romans is full of complex theological concepts, meaty truths, and all of that chewing week after week can wear a person out. If it helps, I'm right there with you. It takes a lot of brain power to figure out what Paul was saying to the church in Rome and what the scripture is saying to us today. This week, we're going to dive deep into just a few verses, and I've wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with this scripture. We're going to look at Romans chapter 13, uh, verses 8 to 10, um, because, and we're going to specifically look at the phrase, love is the fulfillment of the law. And Paul writes that in both verse 8 and in verse 10. We're going to zero in on this statement because Paul says it twice. And whenever we see repetition in scripture, that is an indication to us that the author wants you to pay attention to it because it's important. I want to offer some thoughts on what Paul means by this statement, but before I do that, I think that it's helpful for us to look at how this fits into the overall context of the letter. When you just lift verses out of the Bible and don't consider how they fit into the entire work, you can get in trouble. For example, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, those who marry will have worldly troubles and I would desire to spare you of that. He wrote that, but it would be foolish for us to conclude from that verse that God is against marriage. If you are married and you need a reason to brush your teeth every day, you could look at the words of Job. My breath is offensive to my wife and I am loathsome to my own brothers. But I don't think that Job was referring to dental hygiene in, this, in his words. Acts 20 verse 9 reads, There was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. As tempting as it might be to use that verse as evidence that it is dangerous to fall asleep during the sermon, that's not the point of the story. Context matters. And so let's try to put these verses from Romans into context. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome to encourage the Christians who were living there. They were struggling because the church in Rome included really diverse people, which is great and is difficult because it's difficult to get along with people who are very different from us. It's difficult for a morning person to live with a night owl, right? When I was in seminary, I only needed housing a few nights of the week, and so I was often assigned a random roommate, and that can be challenging. One of my roommates was Julie, and on the first day when Julie and I met, she said to me, 
I am not a morning person. And so do not speak to me until I've had my shower, my cup of coffee, and done my devotions. And I said, okay. <laughs> and Julie and I got along great. In fact, more than 10 years later, we are still friends. But sometimes those differences create division. And that is often the case when we are convinced that our way is the right way. And that those people, whoever those people are, are wrong. That happens, unfortunately, all the time in church. Those who believe that authentic Christian worship is spontaneous and exuberant view worship that is ritualistic and reverent as lifeless. And those who connect with God in worships that is reverent and orderly may view those who are, want to worship spontaneously with a lot of emotion as being worship that is irreverent or even shallow. Those in the church who are passionate about a greater focus on justice might look down on those in the church who focus on personal holiness, and those who are passionate about personal holiness might pass judgment on those who advocate for the church to become more open and tolerant. A diverse church with lots of different people opens lots of cans of worms because a Jesus-loving Republican might find him or herself seated right next to a Jesus-loving Democrat. And that reminds me of a word that I learned in seminary. I love words. I subscribe to dictionary.com's word of the day so that I can keep learning new words recently. I learned words like eggcorn and debuff. One of my favorite words that I learned in seminary was adiaphora. I like it in part because it's fun to say. Adiaphora. It literally means indifferent things things that don't really matter. And most specifically, adiaphora means customs that are not necessary for salvation. Paul wrote the letter to the Romans to this diverse church in Rome because different groups in the church had different customs and different beliefs about whether those customs were necessary for salvation. They didn't agree on what was adiaphora and what was essential. You may, you may remember that the church in Rome included Jewish people who were Christian and Gentile people who were Christian. And the first Christians in Rome were Jewish, but then Emperor Claudius came into power and he kicked those people out of Rome because he thought the Jewish Christians were causing disturbances. But then about five years later, Claudius dies and the Jewish Christians were allowed to return to Rome. But during those five years, while they were away, home had changed. The church had grown, which sounds good, but the new people were very different from the people who were returning. They were Gentiles. Gentile Christians who did not believe that they needed to follow the Old Testament law. And the Jewish Christians struggled mightily with that. God's people had always followed the law for hundreds and hundreds of years. The law was what made them a distinctive people. The law was good. The law brought life. The psalmist wrote, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. And the Jewish Christians who believed that Jesus was the Messiah and who chose to live as his disciples believed that following the law was part of what it meant to follow Jesus. And they had reasons for believing that. 
Because think about when Moses went up on Mount Sinai to meet with God before God gave him the Ten Commandments, God told him, be sure to tell the people how important it would be for them to follow God's law. In Exodus 19, verse 5, God says to Moses, if you fully obey me and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine and you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. God's law was more than a set of rules that the people had to obey. The Jewish people saw God's law as a treasured gift. Again, the psalmist, the commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. And perhaps most obvious of all, Jesus himself said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The Jewish Christians believe that following the law was not it was not an indifferent thing. It was a custom necessary for salvation, and they were firm in their belief, and it was leading to division in the church. What can Paul write to help this diverse church be unified? How does he help these Jewish Christians to hold on to God's good and holy law and to fully embrace their Gentile brothers and sisters? We keep saying that Romans is a masterpiece. And in these few verses that we're looking at in chapter 13, we're going to see one tiny facet of this masterpiece. And so I want to invite you to look with me at Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 10. Paul writes, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. In verse 8, Paul writes that love is the fulfillment of the law. And then in verse 10, he says the exact same thing. But what does he say in between? What does he write in verse 9? You just heard it. Paul quotes the law. And specifically, he quotes from the Ten Commandments, words that God has given to God's people, the first commandments that God gives, words that God wrote on the tablets with God's own finger, the foundation upon which all of the other laws are based. But notice Paul doesn't quote all of the Ten Commandments. He only quotes from what is called the second table, the commandments that are about our relationships with other people. And this may sound familiar because we talked about this when we looked at Jesus's uh, encounter with the rich young ruler in the summertime. Just like Jesus, huh? Paul leaves one out. Now think about this. Paul is a Pharisee. And so just like Jesus, Paul knew the Ten Commandments, oh my goodness, like the back of his hand. And he's writing to Jews who also know the Ten Commandments. They would have instantly realized, hey, you missed one. Paul doesn't quote Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Boom. Boom. 
<laughs> I think Paul wants to shine a spotlight on the crux of the issue by intentionally omitting this commandment, prompting the Jewish Christians to think of it themselves. He wants them to realize for themselves that they are not following the law, that they believe is so important and that they so dearly loved. When we hear giving false testimony, I think we often think of it as lying, which it is, but the Jews see it more specifically than that. For Jews, when you give false testimony, you deprive another person of what wrongly, rightly belongs to them by falsely claiming ownership of something that is in the other person's possession. That's a lot to absorb, so let me illustrate what that means. When I go to the dentist, I hang my coat on a hook in the waiting room. And after I get my teeth cleaned and I pay my bill, I go out and I retrieve my coat from the hook and I walk out of the office. Imagine while I was doing that, if there was somebody sitting in the waiting room and as I'm picking my coat off the hook, they said to me, wait a minute, that's my coat. But it isn't their coat, it's my coat, I put it there. And I would say, no, no, I'm, that, this is my coat. Well, if they insisted, no, 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 that it's their coat, when it really isn't their coat, what they would be doing is giving false testimony. They're saying that something belongs to them, which really doesn't belong to them. They're giving false testimony against me, that something that really does belong to me, they're saying it doesn't. So that's what the Jewish Christians are doing. They're saying that the only the Jewish Christians who followed the law were the real Christians and that these Gentiles didn't really possess the faith in Christ that they, unless they too followed the law. And to say that is giving false testimony about them. It's trying to take away what rightly belongs to them. Paul wants them to see that they themselves weren't following the law that they wanted the Gentiles to follow. In another brilliant move, Paul urges the Romans to take a step back, to see the forest through the trees. Because he says all the other commandments, including the 10 commandments, and even I find this comical, including whatever other commandment there may be, all of it just gets summed up in one command. Love your neighbor as yourself, because love is the fulfillment of the law. In some ways, that's so incredibly simple. Most of us can't memorize very well. I'm sure there's no one listening to this who could name off all 613 commandments in the Jewish law. Most of us can't even name all 10 commandments. But every single one of us can remember that the whole point of the law is love. Paul isn't letting the Gentile Christians off the hook. They can't do whatever they want. Just like their Jewish brothers and sisters, they are slaves to right living, but they are not slaves to the law. The law hasn't been abolished. It's been fulfilled. Right living was always the end game of the law, and right living at its essence is based on love. When you love your neighbor as yourself, you don't need to be worried about the rules and following the law. You don't need to be told, do not murder. You won't steal from your neighbor. You won't covet what your neighbor has. If your actions are based on love, laws almost become unnecessary. I babysit my five-month-old grandson, Benjamin, two times a week. When Emily drops off Benjamin with me, she does not give me a list of rules that I must follow. Emily has never said to me, don't hit Benjamin, <laughs> don't leave the house 
when Benjamin is here. Don't forget to feed Benjamin. She doesn't tell me those things because she doesn't have to. She knows that I love Benjamin as myself. And you don't need law when you have love. But obviously, loving a sweet baby is easy. And it can perpetuate our idea of love as being warm and fuzzy because we've probably all heard that love is not a feeling, right? The kind of Paul, love that Paul is advocating, love that is the fulfillment of the law, is much, much more dependable than a feeling that can come and go. N.T. Wright explains that love does not spring from the emotions, but from the will. That love will grit its teeth and act as if the emotions were in place, trusting that they will follow in good time. Love often demands that we act counter to our feelings. Thomas Aquinas, one of the greatest Christian theologians who ever lived, said that love is to will the good of the other. To love someone is to be committed to their best, not because that will benefit you in any way, but be purely because it will benefit them. It doesn't mean you'll feel all warm and fuzzy when you think about them. It doesn't mean that you will enjoy being with them. It just means that you are as committed to their well-being as you are to your own. Long before I started working on this sermon, I realized that I would be preaching and realized that I would be preaching on love. I started praying that God would help me to love well. Love well has been on my prayer card for several weeks. It isn't on my prayer card because of my sweet grandsons. It's easy to love them well. It's on my prayer card because it's difficult to will the good for people who think differently from us, people who repeatedly annoy us, have disappointed us, or even intentionally hurt us. But Romans, which I believe is God's word to me and also to you, Romans says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. How do you do that? How do you continually over and over pay a debt of love to someone who just rubs you the wrong way? Brene Brown asks a question that's been very helpful to me um, in my intention to love well. And it's a question that has helped me to begin to love my neighbor as myself. And I'm trying to make it a discipline that whenever I encounter someone who annoys me, irritates me, attacks me, stirs up judgmental feelings inside of me, I ask the question, do I believe that this person is doing the best he or she can given the circumstances. It's been a challenging, but also a helpful question for me. If you aren't familiar with Brene Brown, she's a researcher and a sociologist who has become a best-selling author. She tells the story of how this question came to be important to her in her book, Rising Strong, and also in her Spotify podcast, Unlocking Us. Brene is a very engaging speaker. She gets many, many requests to speak at big events and she can't accept them all. And so she often says no, but she reluctantly said yes to an invitation when the person on the phone said to her, I hope you remember that we supported you before you became famous. That statement made her feel guilty and prompted her to say yes to the speaking engagement that she really didn't want to do. 
The event coordinator then told Brene that she would be sharing a hotel room with another speaker. And Brene bristled when she heard that, but the event coordinator once again knew what to say. She said, all the speakers share rooms. Are you saying that you require something special? Brene was irritated at the thought of sharing a room with a stranger, but didn't want to be high maintenance, and so she reluctantly agreed to a roommate. The night before the event, she arrived at the hotel feeling some negativity about the whole thing anyways, really hoping that she would be the first person to check into the room so she could at least settle in undisturbed. And before unlocking the door to her room, she silently prayed, Dear God, please let me be helpful and kind and open-hearted. To her disappointment, she opened the door and saw her roommate sitting on the couch. Her roommate was wearing hiking boots, and she had pushed her boots into the cushion, leaving a footprint stain on the light beige couch. She was also eating a giant cinnamon roll, and her hands were covered in sticky, gooey icing. There was an awkward moment as Brene entered the room, and she was a, Brene was about to set her suitcase down and offer to get her roommate a paper towel or a napkin or anything when her roommate wiped both of her hands on the seat cushion of the couch. Brene's face must have revealed her shock, prompting her roommate to explain, it's not our couch. By now, Brene was very uncomfortable. She just stood gripping the handle on her suitcase, speechless. Her roommate got up, went out onto the patio, leaving the door cracked open, and lit a cigarette. Finding her voice, Brene somewhat timidly said, um, this is a non-smoking room? To which the roommate laughed and replied, they didn't say anything about the patio. Brene quickly went from feeling uncomfortable to being annoyed. And the next time she spoke, she found her authoritative voice and she said, seriously, the entire hotel is non-smoking and the smoke is coming into the room. And what did her roommate do in response? She laughed again and she said, no big deal. We'll spray some perfume. At this point, Brene offered a different prayer. Dear God, please let me be helpful, kind, and open-hearted, became, Dear God, please don't let me do something stupid. She went down to the front desk to request a different room, only to find out that the hotel was full. And so Brene spent the night with an obnoxious roommate, spoke at the event, and then hightailed it out of there the minute that her talk was done. But the experience continued to bother her, and so she brought it up with her therapist who listened to the story, thought for a moment, and then asked Brene, do you think it's possible that your roommate was doing the best that she could do that weekend? Brene was incensed by that question. She crossed her arms, tightened her face, and responded, no, I do not believe that she was doing the best that she could. Do you believe that she was doing her best? Her therapist remained relaxed and open. I'm not sure, but I do believe in general, people are doing the best they can do. What do you think? Brene remained angry 
shot back at her, do you really believe in your heart that people are doing the best that they can do? Or is this just what we're supposed to believe? Honest to God, tell me the truth. Her therapist smiled, paused, and then calmly said, yes, I do believe that most of us are doing the best we can with the tools that we have. I believe that we can grow and get better, but I also believe that most of us are doing our best. And Brene wanted to tell her therapist to hop on a unicorn and ride over the rainbow. But the question stood with her and over time it changed her and it has stuck with me and I hope that it sticks with you. Do you believe that in general, people are doing the best they can? One of the biggest barriers that I struggle with in loving others, in willing the good of others, is believing that they are doing the best that they can in their current situation. I believe I'm doing the best I can, but I don't always extend that same love to others. Loving others as yourself doesn't mean that we just let people wipe their dirty hands on the sofa or break rules that are in place for everyone's benefit. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. He came so that we could be more than conquerors, more than people who play by the rules so that we can experience the abundant life in Christ that he offers to us, but people whose love conquers the brokenness around us. People who love for, for others is sincere. People who are devoted to one another and who honor one another, even when the other is different. That's what Jesus did. Jesus fulfilled the law by loving other people perfectly. Jesus didn't look down on people who were disappointed in him. He, did, he didn't look down on people who annoyed him or even crucified him. What he did say on the cross was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even on the cross, Jesus looked at his executioners with love and recognized that they were doing the best they could do in those circumstances. Paul reminds us that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. You may not be the kind of person who would wipe your dirty hands on a hotel couch. I may not be the kind of person who would flagrantly break the rules by smoking in a non-smoking building, but we are all sinners, just like Brene Brown's obnoxious roommate. And God still looks at us in love. God looks at you and says, I know you're doing the best you can. Keep going. I want your good. Jesus willed the good of all humanity so that all people, vastly different people, could love our neighbors as ourselves, doing no harm to our neighbor because love is the fulfillment of the law. And that's not adiaphora. That's the mark of a true Christian. Amen.